we always try to do what's best for the patient and the pharmacy at the same time. So if I know a supplement that would be great for their synergy of their blood pressure or their diabetes or their blood sugar or whatever it might be, we're adding that to what we're already doing and we're giving them a better service, giving them synergy to their meds, nutrient depletion, whatever you want to call it, because we're doing we're adding that revenue stream, but it's not for profit first. It's always been for me, you've known me for years, it's purpose over profit. And so if we, if we look at it from the financial space, we have to diversify off script. Like there's no question, nobody, not, I don't know, I don't know of anybody, but you might be able to tell me like, they're just doing fine on script alone, right? There's no way. <laughs> right. And and it's not giving we have such a nice wide open uh what we can do with our license isn't just script, right? We can counsel on nutrition, we can counsel on lifestyle, we can counsel on supplements, we can sit them in an office space now and go beyond MTM, medication therapy management is just the optimization piece but all those other things we can bring into the fold. And that's been a challenge, right? Everyone wants to pay for something with the card, but if we're expressing a five to 10 X value on what we're giving our people, they shouldn't have a problem paying for it at that point. So that's, that's a great point. And you know, that's one of the things that you can look in your own medicine cabinet and, and you can, you can make that, uh, that true, uh, no matter what market you're in, you know, um, one of the, one of the easy things to hide behind is that wouldn't work in our market, uh, because it is hard, but you know, at the end of the day, I can go buy a toothbrush for 99 cents, you know, and I have a Sonicare toothbrush that's, you know, hundred plus dollar toothbrush or whatever. Um, but when my uh, my kid went to his orthodontist after getting that Sonicare, his orthodontist was like, "Whoa, man! Best improvement on brushing goes to this kid." And, you know, there there is a notable difference. And so, you know, I wouldn't consider myself somebody who's going to make those uh, frivolous expenses and 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 spend you know a hundred and something dollars on something you could buy for ninety nine cents. But when you when you change your way of thinking and see that this is an investment in you know that that healthcare spend uh, and and it's going to yield some really positive outcomes, all of a sudden that's the best hundred and something dollars you could spend. It's so. all it's when you bring it to long term value, right? So there's two two things that you you came up with is when I've spoken you know nationally on the subject of wellness and 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 professional grade supplements or cash based model. That's the first question a pharmacist comes back is like, my patients won't pay for that. Well, who's have you asked them? Right. It's when I ask that question now, it's like, whose self-limiting belief is it? It's usually the pharmacist because they, we've been conditioned that the, the card pays for this. And we know that we don't want that, but the first step is, can you provide value to that patient that supersedes the cost? Because money is just an exchange of energy, right? It's just a currency is, a, is an exchange for, you know, this shirt I'm wearing or this desk that I bought. If this desk gives me more value than what I'm paying for it, but let's make our patients decide that first. Sure. Rather than us deciding it, because that's the story in our head. We all have them, right? I still have that problem. Oh my God, I'm $150 an hour to come sit with me. I always still have that little thing inside me. It says, so I've, I've worked at it over the years. So that's the first thing we got to answer. Whose problem really is it? And can we solve it and give them the value that they're supposed to? And when it comes to wellness, Will, I, I, this is the best analogy that I think anybody can ask their patient is if you owned a million dollar horse, what would you feed it? You'd feed it pretty well, wouldn't you? Sure, sure. You'd, you'd, you'd have the best shoes on it. It would have a trainer. It would be groomed. Well, 
why aren't we treating our own bodies like a million dollar body? It's the only one we have. So I put wellness and education up on the highest priority for myself, not meaningless things in this world. If we can treat our bodies like a million dollar horse, what does it matter if it's even a couple hundred dollars a month? They're getting it somewhere else if they value it. Trust me, like whether it's Orange Theory, Whole Foods, you know, if you eat organic, right? There's a, there's a cost difference, but you value that. So we just have to be value proposition better for our patients and get them off the script just like we want them to, you know? And so I always love that analogy is just treat yourself like a million dollar horse and see what happens. <laughs> but as far as the, the future of pharmacy, I, I think... I think what you're describing are, are two different uh, two different roles that that I've observed in pharmacy. And as pharmacy owners, we've got to decide uh, which one we're going to be. I, I'm unique in the fact that the decision is made for me because I'm not a pharmacist, right? Uh, but pharmacy owners that are pharmacists have to make a decision, and that decision is: uh, Did I open my own business because I wanted to? have a business and be an entrepreneur or did I open my own business uh, because I just wanted to be a pharmacist and that one that opened their own business just because they wanted to be a pharmacist, they're going to struggle, right? Because uh, their, their focus is being a pharmacist. Uh, Then there's the folks that have said, I'm opening a business. I just happen to be a pharmacist. So that's, that's, that's how I'm going to, to run my business. Uh, Here's the thing. Business changes all the time. okay? and so uh, it's not going to be practiced like it was 25 years ago, 25 years from now. It's not going to be practiced like it was today. And so when you're a business owner, you have to be willing and ready all the time to to shift, to pivot, to uh, to change focus, to say, okay, this is what works now. This is what used to work uh, and, and to be open to those things. So, I, you know, w- whenever I'm talking about this with other pharmacy owners and and they're complaining about uh, about these things, I'm like, well, th- think about uh, think about Netflix. Right. Uh, a, a lot of like my kids don't even realize they were a DVD company. Right. Yeah. They were they were a DVD through the mail, like the, the most inefficient. But but they were they were profitable. Right. And, and they were doing OK with their DVD business. And then streaming came along. Well, if they had said. No, we're focused on our physical product, and it, it's going to always be the the DVD. Guess what? Netflix would be out of business. Uh, but right now, you know, they're they're making billion. You know, they've got billions of dollars in revenue every year because they were willing to change as time went on. They didn't say we're in the DVD business. They said we're in the entertainment business. And so for us, we're not in the pill business. We're in the pharmacy business. And those are two very different things. Uh, so as long as pharmacies keep focusing on, hey, we're in the pill business, yeah, that that is the red ocean. That is the shark-infested area. Uh, if if we focus on the fact, hey, we're in the healthcare business, that changes the that changes the game. Uh, and and pharmacists, and that's the funny thing about this to me. From this is from an outside perspective, right? Not being a pharmacist, it's so funny to me that. Pharmacists, pharmacists didn't get into the business to hand out pills. You go talk, right. you, you go ask any pharmacist, did you get into pharmacy to be able to hand people pills? No. Why did you get into pharmacy? Because I want to be a, an integral part and and a, an approachable, uh, you know, relatable part of their healthcare journey. Okay, let's go be that. Let's go do that. But yet we get so focused and myopic on. What do they reimburse me for these pills? I'm going to back up to even something else you kind of talked about where you started these new programs. What, what, when, when you, I'm sure you coach too, not just on team and team building and things like that, but I'm sure you do a fair amount of coaching on like, how do I just stand up a new vaccine program? Right. Yeah. I, I looked at your website. It looked really rich of what you guys do and do for your community. Um, what's your advice for, for somebody who's like, man, I, I don't even do them yet, but I want to talk through it with someone. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty common. And I think, you know, vaccines are even high level for some folks, you know, sometimes just making your workflow more efficient, you know, can be a big deal for some of those pharmacies. But, you know, if they were just going to start out and they hadn't done any of that, you know, you, you talked about our website, becoming a community stakeholder is really important. And that's something that we cannot um, ever be beat by in a chain pharmacy. They're never going to be shown as a community stakeholder. Um, you know, my my location number three that we bought, um, we've had a fairly difficult time growing that location. It's just a really tiny town, and um, everyone is is elderly, so they pass away, and and we've had a hard time replacing those folks. And we have done all kinds of stuff. I mean, I'm talking giving away Yeti coolers and flat screen TVs and, you know, can't figure it out. Well, last week we invited a taco truck to come make street tacos and we offered free tacos for anyone that wanted food. We delivered to the school. We delivered to a senior citizen center. Uh, You know, we, we did this and we have gotten more just raves out of tacos than we've ever gotten out of, you know, free $50 gift cards sure. and prizes. And it's because uh, people are hungry. They don't have restaurants in the town. Fair. Uh, it's free food. We ran out of tacos. I mean, we we completely ran out. We ran out of food. And we had a ton. I mean, the taco truck did not have any food left in their in their truck. So um, I think just showing your community stakeholder, you know, in, in the city of Sepulpa, where our main store's at, uh, my wife and I also worked uh, to help open a free clinic. And I think that's been pretty awesome because we've got, um, you know, we've had the free clinic open since 2019 right. and we've had a tremendous uh, group of physicians who have been helping us out and they, they've they been seeing patients since then. Uh, we only got the pharmacy open a few months ago. It was a lot harder to open a free pharmacy than it was a retail <laughs> pharmacy. There's a lot more red tape um, associated with that. But I think doing things like that, you know, um, in, in both towns that we practice in, uh, we offer free laundry day right before Thanksgiving where people can, we'll just be there to help them um, fold their laundry and stuff. But we also pay for all their laundry that day. So when wow. they come in, mm-hmm. so um, just different ways that you can give back. And, and it's only, you know, for me, the community is is what supports us. That's why we yeah. have our doors open. So why, why wouldn't we be supporting them? So I think if they want to start a vaccine program, I would start by making sure they are a stakeholder because it is going to be a totally out of the box idea that they're offering vaccines. Yeah. Um, I think that that's where I would start. That makes total mm-hmm. sense, actually. Yeah, um, and it fits in line. You know, we through oh, COVID, we talked to a bunch everybody. of people. You know, like almost everybody that's been successful in this has had some kind of relationship with public health or, you know, local anything, the Chamber of Commerce, whoever it was. They've had relationships with their community, and all of those things are that's what made them successful. I think. It's really interesting because when I started pharmacy school, I remember asking a question to someone and saying, like, if I don't think this prescription is right, like, do I have an obligation to fill it? Because I'm like, where does that ethic part of where does that come in? Or are you just is your job really just to, to fill this and get it through the counter and make sure that everything is correct and what the prescription says? And I recognized at that point that as a pharmacist, I have the opportunity to say, I don't think this is correct and I'm not going to fill this for you. And that is exactly what Dan did. And I think that as a industry, I really think that that that's a hard decision to make because it does become like, okay, are your supervisors going to support that? Like, where does your own personal ethics come into that whole piece? But what Mm -hmm. he did, I admire so much to say like, this is a problem for my patients. I recognize this particular provider that seems to be an issue. And I'm going to go back like all the way through these steps and I'm going to help our community solve this problem. Right. And the I harder really piece of that, that is that is that you know you're a, you're a huge advocate against the opi- opioid crisis and you're doing your part to yeah. save that patient that's in front of you. Yes. But at the same time there's only so much, so much you can do because that patient's going to get frustrated. Yep. They're going to take it to another pharmacy that will fill it for them. Yeah, and I and then there's the in in the the really part that uh oh God, what was that HBO show with Michael Keaton that really was it dope sick? To, Yes, yes, that one. I every episode just made me just nauseous. Yeah. And that's at you, you how wonder, they do you, started that. Do you think any pharmacists actually feel like it's their responsibility to fill it anyway, or do you think they hide behind that? Um. I think that a lot of 
a lot of pharmacists might feel kind of complacent in the fact that they're just going to fill it because it's maybe not necessarily their responsibility to navigate that situation with a patient. And frankly, how do you really know if it's appropriate or not? If you're just in a community setting and you don't see what that indication is, do you really know the patient? Do you have 400, 500 scripts coming through a day? And I recognize that that can be a huge barrier. So I I don't mean to criticize pharmacists in general for just passing that prescription through at all, because you don't always have all the information. And Dan particularly was in an independent pharmacy that was much smaller, so he could recognize Mm -hmm. those things much quicker. But I think for me, even independent of the not filling a prescription like that, taking the charge to educate that patient when you do see that prescription come through. Do you know how to dispose of this medication if you have extra? That's something that's really important to me. I've worked with the DEA in National Drug Take Back Days for the past two years and helping people understand how to safely dispose of the medication and get rid of it and advocating for getting rid of the extras because that tends to be a huge issue in terms of getting these medications into our communities when people have all this extra and then they're like, oh, where did all the extras go? Hmm. Or they're like, oh, I've got Mm -hmm. some of this. Let me give it to you. And the danger that comes along with that um, in terms of just safely storing medications so that people can't access them, that people can't accident, your children can't accidentally take them. Um, And so there's other things that we can do even outside of, you know, intervening and saying, I'm not going to fill this. But there's so much education that we can provide people to make sure that they understand um, if that prescription maybe comes through with a naloxone prescription saying, do you have a family member in your household that knows how to administer this? People think that you administer Narcan or Naloxone to yourself. And that is something that I think is really interesting. I never even Mm -hmm. considered that. But people are like, oh, if I'm overdosing, I I give myself this spray in my nose. No, not at all. Um, And people, if they get this prescription for Naloxone and they don't know that someone else is supposed to use it, it's not going to help them. Right. So making sure that they fully understand what they can do with the, with the tools that they have in front of them. And, you know, opioids are appropriate in a lot of situations. I'm not saying that they're not. But, I mean, do people recognize the risks of them when they're prescribed them? Are they really given all the information? Do they? I'm all about empowering people with knowledge. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you the information about the risks and benefits and allow you to make your decision as a patient. If your prescriber gave you this prescription for X, Y, or Z, I want you to understand what the risks and benefits of this are and what potentially you can do to keep yourself and the people around you safe. I feel like that's my job. So if the FDA is going to try to keep pharmacists from being able to prescribe... What's the pharmacy going to do? Make a relationship with a telehealth provider? I, I, think, I think what you're describing is the tectonic policy implementation value proposition battle of the next three to five years, frankly, because there's been some open questions that got settled during the pandemic. Like you know, what? Can, can pharmacies bill medical? Are pharmacies willing to schedule patients? Can pharmacies derive a margin from providing services and load balance their labor? Blew all of those things out of the park. Can they adopt? I mean, infusion's a great example. Within three to four weeks of the opportunity, we had hundreds and hundreds of pharmacies doing infusions. If you had said that pre-pandemic, you'd have been like, no way, pharmacies aren't going to get it. It's too hard. It's too weird. Mm -hmm. It's not in their space. Well, when you have a $400 and $700 opportunity, guess what? You figure it out real quick. Right. Right. So those questions are answered. Now it's going to become structurally what's going to happen with vertical integration? What do the policy battles look like? What is the role of the consumer and the public saying, wait a second, it's safer, more effective and cheaper for me to go this route versus that route? Why are you preventing me from going this route? I think that's going to be the big theme over the next three to five years when it comes to the longer arc of community pharmacy. Do you think there's some correction in there for like nurse practitioners and PAs where they they went and they expanded so fast that a lot of them seem to be out of their scope? If you look at, you know, cost of care, they're doing more defensive stuff. They're doing way more tests. They drive up costs in certain cases. Do you think pharmacy is kind of suffering from some of that now where 
if there's a, a limited scope of practice for prescribing for pharmacists, that makes way more sense than just saying, open it up. I, I think the nature and culture of pharmacy as our upbringing and our professionals were, were our own worst enemy when it comes to how do we communicate our value to consumers in the marketplace. And I think it relates to how, and I'm pro, like there's great PAs out there. There's great MPs out there. I, as an, a trained health economist, I'm all for people leveling up. It just makes sense to do it that way, just from a systems perspective. But if you look at folks that are in sort of these other areas, like so you have pharmacists, PAs, MPs, other types of professionals and paraprofessionals. And when you look at services that get covered, when they win policy battles or when they get credentialed or when they get services, what I keep trying to, to convey to a lot of the folks in, in my network is in pharmacy, our natural inclination and primary care suffered from this. Family medicine very much suffered from this. Our natural inclination is to say, we're good at taking care of people. We can keep them healthy over the long run and we can prevent downstream hospitalizations and whatever else. We bring lots of health and economic value to the system. Okay. Yep. Patient-centered medical home was primary care 1967. Nothing really actually changed until the money conversation changed with the Affordable Care Act and some of the antecedents of it. Right? Yep. They made the same mistake we're making in pharmacy. Pharmacy's making the same mistake PCPs have been doing for a long time, which is the logical, sane value proposition if you're talking to a centralized system like the UK or Canada or whatever else, right? We have a different type of a system. It's a, it is a marketplace of ideas, good or bad. Some of those are good ideas. Some of them are bad, but it gets... The, the, there's a sort of a quasi-marketplace policy battle with agency cost in the U.S. And you don't win that battle by saying, hey, over the course of 10 or 20 or 50 years, look at how much value I can bring to the system. That doesn't lead to a CPT code that pays 120 bucks for a 9-9 whatever. Right. Because we're on annual budgets, annual legislative cycles, right? We don't have this like long-term national strategy that you can actually reinforce on long-term time horizon value. We have fist fights every you know, annum, right? And so to me, what I've seen in the marketplace, and I think we need to apply in pharmacy is not, hey, there's a study that says we save dollars two to one over five years. We've done a gazillion of those. Primary care's done a gazillion of those. The way you win the battle is you say, by not letting me do this, people are getting harmed. That's how things get covered. I want access to that Alzheimer's drug. My grandma's getting harmed. My mom's getting harmed right. by you limiting access to it. Not here's this great ROI analysis that yada, yada, yada. Those are AMCP dossiers that go out to every country in the world except the U.S. There's a reason AMCP dossiers, they go to P&T committees, but at the end of the day, this battle's won on people not having access and they feel like they are being harmed or there's risk to them by not getting access to a service. And I see that in Medicaid in a lot of spaces, trust me, right? Where there's all sorts of services that are available that they try to turn them off and advocates say, you're, you're harming my disabled child or you're harming this or you're harming, you're causing risk to people. Those are newspaper articles. Those are successful campaigns. And the, and the crazy part about it uh, uh, um, gentlemen, is pharmacy, along with primary care, are probably the two principal providers and conveyors of safety. If you had to pick two providers in your life or for your mother and father, right, or your son or your daughter that you want to make sure have their crap together for your safety, it's those two. But yet, we both do a really bad job of saying if you don't have good access to primary care services and you don't have access to pharmacy and pharmacy services where we can actually organize stuff, here's all the bad things that happen to you. Hmm. We've got to do a better job of that. Let's step back like three breaths. When you said the program for training technicians is rolling out this month, um, 
where is it rolling out and what kind of training does it look like? What does it look like? Yeah. So, um, thanks for asking that. The, um, the experience we've had with community health workers. So we trained our first technician as a community health worker about three, almost four years ago, I guess. And the, in the, each state, the curriculum is a little bit different in what's required, but I can tell you the journey in Missouri has been get them trained, get standardized curriculum, get that recognized by the state and then see what you can do with that from the, you know, from the pharmacy and the outreach worker standpoint. So that we'll just put all that process aside and just assume that um, either states recognize a community health worker or they're interested in recognizing a community health worker. So what we did was we we were approached after some success that we had had in in public health arrangements and, and and so on in the state of Missouri to help create a curriculum specifically for pharmacy technicians. Okay. Because what we're finding is, and we I was just at the uh, PQA annual meeting last week and you know, everything's oh, social terms well. of health now. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. I guess we okay. were. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we were there and you know, it's funny. Everything's SDOH, social determinants of health, the last mile care, local, local, local. But what what happens is a lot of times, you know, in my experience, those that are in charge of providing that are a lot of times not local. And and the people that need to be engaged that are the highest cost, most at risk. Those people are the ones without cell phone minutes or broadband. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So like, how do you, you've got to have somebody local. So having a sustainable place in a community like a pharmacy to have an SDOH expert, like a community health worker just makes sense in today's environment. Our state saw that. So they commissioned us to help build a curriculum based on the framework of like some, some um, um, curriculum that already existed. Like here are minimum standards for curriculum. Okay. So um, Bianca Daisy Bell, our clinical director in, in, in for our company, for our pharmacies, um, helped and she used to be in academia. And so she helped write this curriculum, got it approved in the state of Missouri. And then we took that curriculum and we we uh, commissioned uh, CE Impact to, to help us make okay. that sustainable. Because nice. one of the things that we found out was this curriculum's great, but if it's at a community college and that's, you know, the classes from three to six on Tuesdays, a technician ain't going to be able to go do yeah, that. So we had to think outside the box and come up with something that was longitudinal. The hours were, were you know, maybe work at your own pace, cohort based, but uh, that technicians could, could do. And so our first cohort is being onboarded right now in May. We're going to have three classes this year and we're, we're scaling this as fast as we can because the need's there. I'm talking, I mean, I've talked to, shoot. By the end of by the end of July, I'll have talked to f- six different states. I think really? um, whether it's their state nice. association, pharmacy association, whether that's their public health department, um, you know, who whoever that is about this endeavor because it's you know it's a solution that's pretty simple. Like okay, so let's empower our technicians to focus on in need patients. That's all right. Let's come up with enrichment opportunities for our current staff that makes their job more rewarding. <laughs> Not a big downside either. Right. And oh yeah, maybe it helps provide some, you know, you're the target of last mile care for you know, underserved populations. I mean, that's still all, that gives you the, you know, the good warm feeling all around. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things, you know, if through a lot of the podcasts we talked about, it's really been focused on, you know, pharmacy just absolutely hitting a home run for public health. And, you know, we were all that, you know, if we weren't into public health, we probably wouldn't have been pharmacists in the first place. And so, you know, this seems like a, a really nice natural evolution of, all right, pharmacy's proven that public health has to be a central tenant of what we do. And like most good programs, they're successful because you have really good technicians doing a lot of the groundwork. So th- I like, I really like the idea of it. I have to see if Texas is um, doing anything like that at all. It's, um, it's also resonating in, in- Again, I go back to these technicians are typically doing this work anyway. Right. The good ones are. Like mm-hmm. our crew's been doing, they've been helping people through tough situations and getting transit and housing authority and meals on wheels for years. Yeah. Hey, mm-hmm. Medication, if they can't get it, if it's too expensive, finding ways to get medication. Like we just consider that like normal practice, but that is hugely important, especially if you start quantifying like how much money is saved. We showed up in our first community health worker project, we showed that. Over 100 patients, we saved an average of $70 out of pocket per patient per month. That's not total cost of care. That's $70, and that's only in patients that determined that they could afford their medicine afterwards. And so that $70 was out of pocket per month that we save people by engaging a community health worker and a pharmacist, their, their health care provider, to, to really triage the situation and make sure that you know it was affordable. What are you excited about right now in your pharmacy? I don't know, excited is necessarily the word, but the, 
Well, I mean, the one thing we realized with all this COVID is medical billing is just a disaster. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them out there. And look, I get it. They're probably all overwhelmed as well because, you know, nobody was set up for all these. Um, so we're really working through that, trying to get that all cleaned back up. I mean, we're still cleaning up claims from last year, for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but our growth moving forward will be to, to grow that independent living concept as much as we can. Well, the nice thing about it is you really can plan your deliveries. You know, Connellsville and Claysville have a larger geographical area. So we know when people need their meds. We know when they're coming due. Now that allows us to deliver to different areas throughout the week. I try to optimize that as much as possible. Yeah. So with that, are you looking at growing into like new areas? You kind of mentioned medical billing. Does that open the door for some, some, you know, DME uh, consultations really to make that at-home space uh, optimal? No, uh, honestly, the the North Carolina guys who kind of got CPSN started, they've got the right idea. I mean, we all know the pharmacy pot is shrinking and shrinking, and there's less dollars available in it. Um, you know, the future for any of us is what we can get into on the medical side, um, be it collaborative practice with other physicians or what we're able to bill out ourselves these days. Is it diabetic testing? Is it um, group teaching classes? Whatever those are, those are above my pay grade. Um, but that's where we need to be in the future. Yeah. You, you can't have an independent retail pharmacy these days, have your doors open and expect people just to walk through because of who you are. You have to give them a reason to come there because nine times out of 10, they're getting pounded with marketing material that go to your preferred pharmacy, CVS, go to your preferred pharmacy, Walgreens. Um, you got to give them a reason to come to you. You know, I know you guys like to talk about niches and honestly, I don't know if there's any one thing we're really that good at, but we offer a whole bunch of things that you roll them up. We're a full service pharmacy, whereas the chains aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's really, I mean, you, you can find those, those specialty kind of areas to, to stand out and, and maybe, you know, gain some, some new patients, um, but, but I think you're right. I, I think you can't do just one thing. There's no no silver bullet. You know, when I, when I think about the pharmacies that, that stand out there, the pharmacies that are really just doing everything and doing it really well, you know, um, you guys seem to have that that same mentality. And, and if you go to, you know, anywhere in the country, if you find the standout pharmacies, if you go to uh, Kirk's pharmacy out in Washington, clear across the other side of the country, it's the the same thing. He's doing all of those things um, and just doing them very effectively. And those all add up to be more than the sum of its parts. I agree. Do you see a fourth location coming in or are you going to, are you going to stick with three locations? Is that enough for you? Much to my chagrin, my oldest decided he wants to go to pharmacy school next year. So uh, we'll see where that happens. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I got 10 years to ride this out. So <laughs> might as well make it interesting, right? Yeah. So, I mean, geographically, um, you know, it seems like you've got a, a nice area. Is, is there, do you, do you have your eyes set? Like, man, if, if we just kind of closed this, we would have these two counties covered you know, would have network adequacy for, for these two counties. I've looked at some maps. Yes. yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fun. So, um, you know, one of the things that you'll see in like Facebook groups, or, uh, if you spend time on Reddit is, you know, a lot of people ask, should I go into pharmacy school? Is that ship sailed? Is it still worth pursuing a new career? Um, and so I'm I'm curious sometimes to hear that. So it it's neat for you to uh, kind of share that your your kid is interested in that. So what do you what do you think about you know the opportunities for the next generation of pharmacy? I think that you have to you know I call it digging up stones because you got to keep digging under that next stone to find that next opportunity. So if you're willing to do that and you can strike gold every now and again, then you keep it going. 
I mean, look, I don't think anybody graduates pharmacy school and says, man, I can't wait to work for the big box store. Let me go. Give me 30 years of my life there. Yeah. They just don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't think so anyway. So, you know, if, if you're entrepreneurial, if you want to try to control your own destiny as much as you can, and you're willing to keep looking for that next opportunity, I think it's great. And I had that discussion with my son. Um, but if you, as I said, if you think you're just going to open the doors and because, hey, we're Curtis Pharmacy, people are going to roll in. It just it doesn't happen that way. We're getting a lot of communication with providers um, and, and we are really noticing that we're very well respected. Like yeah. if we kind of thought, oh, we were going to fax these off and it's going to be like sending those outcomes to pay this patient needs a stat and then you fax it 50 times and you never hear back. I know. Yeah, everyone um, ignores those But we're getting no responses same yeah. day, maybe next day. Um, and we really feel like we're part of the team. Yeah. And not just a fax, but I've phone had calls. phone calls. Yeah. Um, even just, you know, they'll send over a new prescription for lisinopril or something. Yeah. So we're making some really great changes in patient patient outcomes and um, had one patient that we got set up with a Dexcom meter and he yeah. loves it. And that was <laughs> partially our recommendation trying cool. to get him like to help control his diabetes. Changes so life. Yeah, yeah. No, you literally Absolutely. changed so his exciting. life. Yeah. Uh, making a lot of inroads with the physicians then mm -hmm. it sounds like as well. What are the, how, well, I, I think in North Carolina that Joe and Amina have both kind of oh, really yeah, no, opened pi pi like, the lack of a better term, pioneered it. Yes, they've, they've pioneered. <laughs> I mean, because there are some of our of our pharmacists who say they struggle to get the doctor to email them or communicate oh. back. And I think Amina and Joe have really kind of opened up that conversation and created a great community conversational loop between the doctors and the pharmacist. So I think it's amazing and a great testimonial to get other states and other pharmacists to get off behind the and, bench. Well, and also what they're doing too, is they're providing value first. Like if mm -hmm. I'm faxing you, Hey, this is what I did for your patient. You can go update your chart notes, whatever you need yep. to do yeah. and go, Hey, this yeah. is what it's way easier to go knock on that person's door and go, Hey, I'm Tori. I'm the one that sent you those faxes <laughs> yes, that, um, exactly. uh, about your patients, man. You can have a much like it's a much more approachable conversation yeah, than really. just straight up showing up. You've never met me before, but this is what we do. Well, and yeah. not to mention that now you've, 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 that that um, conversation and then just um, engagement. And so now it's like, okay, they, they actually take care of my patients. It's not just going to be I send a medication and it may or may not work and who cares? And right. that, that opens up more patients being sent to your pharmacy. And, and, uh, and that, that's a good that's point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you're also... That's the end goal. And, and what Madison just typed up some gold here. So I'm giving you credit for that. But it's, a, it's way <laughs> easier to walk up to them and go, this is what I did do. And then tell them what you can do mm -hmm. instead exactly. of instead of just exactly. saying what what you can do. Right. So exactly. instead so, of putting yeah. it the and way that you... That's a lot of this. <laughs> and the, a lot of what's going on is we're trying to get the data that the state is collecting. Mm -hmm. They're trying to collect data. So we're not the only pharmacy working on this project. We've got like a whole network of pharmacies throughout the state, but we're trying to collect this data and say, look at what pharmacists are doing. Pay us. We are mm -hmm. worth like, you know, these payers telling them we are worth your time and your money. You're, you know, you've been around a long time, talked to now you're doing consulting, um, probably interacting with a lot of different companies. What, what it should, what should a community pharmacy and independent pharmacist what, who owns a store, what should they be doing? What did they, what did, should they be working on? Well, I think the first thing is we need to make sure the reimbursement is, is, is fixed. And I know people have tried to do that. I know NCPA and ACDS and all of the other things there as far as DIR reform. And I think we're making headway. Uh, and I think that's the first thing to make sure that they're uh, um, making sure they're getting the best they can when it comes to reimbursement. I think the independent pharmacy needs to make sure they pick the right PSAO mm -hmm. that they feel comfortable with that's going to negotiate with them. And I also think that uh, an independent pharmacy needs to get involved back to community base where they could potentially make a difference and to go back out again years like they did in the past to go out and speak to the community about yep. bringing them into mm -hmm. the their thing and there's organizations out there like CPSEN and other ones when it comes to clinical outcomes and things like that. And they need to continue to do that. Um, you know, companies like Change Healthcare that I still consult for, you know, the clinical product. And there's several other companies out there that are doing that. And I think they need to look at that 
uh, as far as what they could do. Just sitting there putting pills in a bottle and worried about DAR and worried about clawbacks and worried about getting cut out of network, I think they need to look at that. And I think they also need to uh, spend as much time as they can, even though it's costly, with the patient. Um, and, and again, it's still trying to balance all of those things. But I'm going to kind of add on to what Jeff asked, and you've been kind of saying in the background, but that's and that we've also heard from other pharmacists who've um, had a very successful and thriving uh, store, and that's they've got to get out from behind the bench and, you know, get these med students in and let them get their years of bench experience while you're growing the business. So I think that's the biggest thing. Like Eric Larson is the biggest coach on that is that get out from behind the bench. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what people do. Um, even though I, I talked to one pharmacist this last week, they paid a million dollars in DR fees last year. million dollars. Um, had it not been, um, and another guy I talked to, he had a long-term pharmacy that would have lost money last year without COVID testing. So, you know, kind of this last year, COVID testing and vaccines have kind of helped. Um, but kind of help them get their books back in order and fix some of their bad debt and stuff. But the question now is, well, what are you going to do next year? You know, what are you going to do next year to make it? So I think that's a well point. You know, I talk to a lot of the pharmacy chains. I talk to some independents, talk to independent pharmacy vendors all the time. And unfortunately, or fortunately, because of COVID, those numbers were fictitious. So they grew tremendously to your point, Jeff, last year. Well, how are they going to keep that up or how are they going to do that? And I think there's going to be a rude awakening. And, you know, listen, we hope the pandemic goes away. I know we talked about the fourth vaccine. We talk about future like flu uh, every once in a while, every year or two, getting a vaccine for that. But I think that's going to go away or it's going to go to the sideline temporarily. Mm -hmm. And they need to figure out where else they're going to make additional money. And I think uh, to your point, Marsha, by them coming out of the counter, by them spending more time with the patient, working things out with local payers mm-hmm. uh, um, and, and doing some stuff there. You know, Christian, I'm not sure, Tadras from um, St. Louis is working on some things as well. NCPDP, where I'm still involved on the foundation board, uh, we're looking at value-based care and how standards could help promote that. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's where all of this is going because it's not – putting pills in a bottle anymore because you won't survive uh, doing that. As a pharmacy uh, owner, as a pharmacist, you know, you're, you're doing the best you can. You're buying drugs uh, as responsibly as possible, keeping your, uh, your inventory lean. You're, you're doing all the right things. You're providing excellent patient care. And yet the reimbursements are uh, somewhat out of your control. So you get to, you get to decide on your level of care and, and your investments in, in your business, but not on any of your own pricing, which is just bizarre. But um, not only that, then you have to vigilantly um, uh, defend your profits that you have gotten. Yeah. So uh, over the past few years, we've seen at least awareness arise about DIR fees and, and PBMs. Uh, because even just a couple of years ago, I think most people were unfamiliar. Uh, and now those are, you know, part of the part of the, the healthcare conversations, at least. Um, so when did you see those those numbers start to creep in and really have an effect on on day to day business where, where you guys said, hey, there, there's a there's a new challenge here. We need to we need to make sure that we're we're being proactive on. Yeah, so DIR fees are actually kind of fascinating from that perspective, like the timeline here, because when I went to pharmacy school, they weren't, they they existed, but like no one was paying attention to them um, because they were a tiny proportion of the business at that time. Um, if you read the the most recent proposed rule from from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they list a chart of like, how much DIR was collected from pharmacies by year. And like they started in 2010 and the fees were like in total for the entire country, like $10 million or something. And that was like point point like 0.001% of total drug costs. And today, um, to, drug costs to Medicare. And today it's like 
you look and it's grown by CMS put this number in their thing, 107,000% increase until 2020. That doesn't include 2021 oh, and wow. certainly not 22. Um, from 2010 till 2020, the fees grew by 1,070 times is, is the way that I like to put that because 107,000% just doesn't mean anything to anybody, right? <laughs> right. Um, but they've, they've increased by a factor of 1,000 um, to the point where now they constitute 4.5% of the total spend on drugs in Medicare. Um, and that's just pharmacy DIR. DIR is a, is a broader thing than just pharmacy. It's also um, if a PBM extracts money from a manufacturer for um, formula replacement, they have to report that as DIR to Medicare as well. And that's actually a larger category than pharmacy DIR, which implies that at least 10%, but probably more like 15 or 20% of our total spending in Medicare is fake money. It's not actually spending, it's it's rebates coming back to the plan from the pharmacy or from the from the pharma or whoever else. And that frankly, from a like I care about other people perspective, um, the IR fees are not just harmful to pharmacies. And I think that pharmacies and pharmacy advocates have done themselves a disservice in the past by um, saying, look, this is all about me and I'm, I'm losing money, I'm losing money. No one cares if you're losing money, frankly. Like, you do, but, and, and your colleagues do, but like, your senator and, your, and the seniors, they don't care. Um, and so, but what they do care about is that DIR fees make Mrs. Jones, the senior, overpay for her medicines by 20%. You know, if she's yeah. if she's on a fixed income, she's spending three thousand dollars a year, and she you're telling me she could be paying twenty five hundred for her prescriptions if if we got rid of these stupid fees. Yeah, I'm I'm telling you that. Um, yeah, well, what's happening? Yeah, like when when you look for sympathy as a you know successful business owner, it may be hard to find when you um, point out that there's just money leaking from the equation somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> then it's, uh, you know, it, it sounds like it's gotten to be that, um, you know, excessive issue like we talked about with MedSync for long-term care. You have to do it because it's that big of an issue or, or managing a huge inventory of, of really, really expensive drugs. That's an ex the, that extreme situation. Uh, it seems like it's, it's here with DIR fees where you really can't ignore it and you have to do something. Um, so what can you do? If you take a look at the uh, Brandon Cooper Twitter feed, you're going to see a lot of those um, uh, reposts coming from the hashtag DIR camp. So tell me a little bit about that. Like how can how can people kind of, um, I don't know, help help educate uh, their their peers and their 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 community about those unfair practices and what can they do to really fix that? Because it's bigger than one pharmacy. You know, nobody can really go fix that. No, and I think that's part of goes back to the education and advocacy side is, I mean, you know, some of our biggest advocates here at, at SUS are our own patients because they see how they're impacted. So I think it's just talking about these things with them, you know, when they come in and they say, well, why is that so much? Or why am I told to go to this other pharmacy where it's cheaper. And I think if you'll just take a few minutes to explain that, then people realize that there's an issue. So then when you get them also on your side, along with your local legislators and your uh, state pharmacy associations, if you get them to start calling those national leaders, your senators and your representatives and educating them. So once they see, you know, more than just pharmacists out here saying, we're not getting paid, but once they see patients harmed, then I think that's that's where it starts hitting home and they start saying, OK, there is an issue here when, you know, people can't afford their medicine. And it's all because of these games that are being played behind the scenes or, or these people can't get their medicines because they're waiting to get it from a specialty pharmacy or from mail order. And, you know, it's taking weeks to months, you know, to get issues like that resolved and people are doing out their medicine. Then I think. 
those national leaders start taking note of that and saying, okay, it's there's there's more here than just pharmacists not being paid for their right. for, for filling prescriptions or for services. There, you know, people are being harmed. Yeah, no, because you know, a, a pharmacy, a doctor, a, you know, any any profession, uh, I feel like people have certain assumptions of, and if you hear a uh, medical professional saying we're not being paid. The general person um, hearing that is like, "Oh, doctors make so much; they're fine." Uh, and it's really not. The margins have gotten pretty slim, um, you know. And and I feel like most people just don't understand the landscape that uh, pharmacists, especially, are playing in. You know, when you do see patients complain uh, about drug cost. A lot of the time, they're complaining about, you know, they, they went in and got AWP as a cash price. Nobody pays that. You're not – of course you can't afford that because insurance companies don't pay that either. Uh, and then when you start getting into more of the, you know, intricate aspects of, of GIR, uh, the GER gaps and, and, you know, the maximum allowable cost, all of a sudden, you know, it's it's just really too – convoluted for uh, most people to just understand what's going on and why it needs to be fixed. You know, I actually thought about you this morning. Uh, I, I was getting ready and I was thinking about this podcast and I saw sitting on my shelf um, like the Dollar Shave Club, you know, and, and that was just such a great example of like, here's a utilitarian thing. There's nothing cool about, you know, uh, budget razors. Uh, but they've branded it in a certain way, and it pops up on my Instagram feed. Uh, now that I've said it out loud, it's going to pop up today, I'm sure. But but it's a utilitarian thing that I need, um, and there's nothing really cool about that product specifically. But they 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 reached me online. They um, offer a product that's delivered. It's convenient. And and they branded it in a way that makes you feel like it's something cool when it comes in. You know, it's got like some nice graphic design. But they're able to fill that niche and kind of change the way you think about that product. And now, a you know, these razor blades that cost nothing, you know, they've turned it into a really great business. But again, they've just kind of changed the way people perceive that utilitarian product. And, you know, I think there's so many different areas of, you know, healthcare and medicine that um, – they can kind of get that same treatment, just, you know, make make me think about it a little bit differently, right? Like how many other of those utilitarian products can you just kind of recall the logo and think of like that? Right. Or not necessarily make you think about it differently, but maybe put it in a format that's like fun to digest, um, you know? So if you're going to talk about MedSync, you know, it's kind of a boring topic or you're going to talk about so think about a way that you could sort of recreate those in a format like a reel, like a you know an Instagram reel um, that's going to have more of a hook or that's going to be slightly quirky, um, you know, that's going to make people chuckle and give them a chance to like remember that video about maybe it was kind of funny or maybe it was just a little weird, um, but it's going to stick with them, you know. Uh, so that's. And, and those are the ones that like we've got really good traction off of. Like I was just looking over, um, you know, some of our, our posts and promoted posts in the past. Um, and those ones that we've sort of we've been a little comical on, but still serious and still presenting information have definitely done the best over the ones that we've just been like really serious. And granted, it would look professional, but people just kind of just bore out, you know, and they just I mean, people's attention spans. I think they're just getting shorter and shorter. And no, I don't. I mean, definitely. I don't know what. I don't know what's going to happen, but I mean, I don't think people are going to be able to concentrate beyond like sixty seconds in the next ten years. <laughs> so you got to. You yeah. got to. You got to keep it concise. Um, and it, it needs to have some sort of like a hook, you know, or some sort of like comic relief, so it sticks with them and that they they want to remember it. Um, and maybe it's so good they'll even share it, and that's like. That's the greatest free marketing you can get when you're getting somebody to share your promoted content. Uh, so, yeah, or uh, just share that visual of uh, walking around town in a great-looking uh, 
you know, t-shirt that supports your community and your local businesses. Yeah. Yeah. You just always have to, um, you know, be on your A game when you're wearing your pharmacy t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> always on my A game. <laughs> Question for you. Um, so, I mean, you're obviously in social media, you're only targeting a central, a, a specific age demographic. What about the other age demographics? Um, how are you reaching out to them? Um, you know, the funny thing about the social media is um, I thought it would be very much millennial based, the mm-hmm. millennials that would be, I was reaching out to. Yeah. Um, on, on Instagram, I think I have more grandmothers than I do yep. their granddaughters. Mm-hmm. Like it, they share each other. I thought it would be limited, but I have more that are over the age of 60 than I do that are under the age of 20 that yeah. are following. So and TikTok has gone the average age on TikTok has gone up by seven years in the last year, meaning that the user is now seven years older than they used to be. So we parents are chasing them off their platforms of what oh, we yeah, do, we right? <laughs> they start out with Facebook. We came on and then they left. So they then went we followed to Instagram. And now they left. Yep. Now they're at TikTok and we're chasing them to TikTok. So um, we, we tried radio ads. I honestly didn't find a lot of success that way. Yep. Um, for yeah. 18 and a half years, I didn't pay any money for advertising. I just did me as good as I could. And so I, I actually have gone out from reaching other groups and come back into social media because I can do a post for free. Yep. Yep. And I will have 200,000 people see it by the end of the day. Even I if mean, they're not local. I mean, does anybody listen to radio anymore? I mean, everybody's on like either no. Apple Podcasts or yeah. Rhapsody or Spotify or... Podcasts. There's that. That's yeah. why I was excited about doing this. Podcasts are huge. If you oh, yeah. Podcasts. Yeah. So, so you say three to five people a day. Do you do anything, any kind of measure of their demographic? So those three to five customers you're adding a day that say they saw you on the podcast, what's their demographic? Um, you know, what you get a lot of is you get a lot of um, kids that are taking care of their parents are the ones that I'm getting the most of. So I'm getting a lot of the prescriptions for the very for the ones that are the older age group, but they're mm-hmm. coming in because the kids that are taking care of them are done trying to manage all that elsewhere. Yeah. So they'll come in and say, huh. take care of my mom and dad. I, I could definitely see that. No, that's, yeah, that's something I didn't think about. You know, this whole more of a caregiver yeah. generation. Oh yeah. I, I could definitely see that. Cause I mean, like I try and line my grandmother out with, you know, and she's for, for some reason, 83, 85 years old, she's doing it right. Not on any medication, but she does take like daily supplements, but she's not on any medication. Um, but I try to line her out with, you know, Hey, there are some pharmacies that could probably put this in a, in a pouch for you. And then you just tear off your daily pouch. Um, yep. and then the same with my mom and she's on a lot and I'm like, let's find a doc, a pharmacy that that's doing like the Parada or art safe, the packaging and just put all your stuff in and then make it easier. Cause she carries around like a gallon Ziploc bag. Oh, right. But I mean, it's also like other supplements that she gets from what my dad calls her voodoo doctor. <laughs> There's a lot of those around the witch doctors is what we call them around here. So how would you say the pandemic has affected management training and management styles? I would say in every way. And it has, it began, I will say this, I think there was a shift prior to the pandemic. Um, okay. The the integration of millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Yers and things, you know, we began to get a sense that things were not going to be the same, mm-hmm. that we were going to have to manage people differently. We were going to have to lead people differently. And so I think the pandemic just accelerated it, perhaps, Marcia. You know, it, it just—I think I agree with it, that statement. It ignited. It ignited yeah. what was already perhaps forming, and mm-hmm. um, you know, the other piece of this too is deciding for yourself what kind of leader you want to be in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's personal or professional. So I think it impacted how people show up as leaders. And now we have to look at the management and, tr- and, and leadership development programs that mm-hmm. existed before the pandemic. To what degree are they even relevant anymore? Mm-hmm. Do, you, um, do you do anything in your class that addresses remote leadership? 
you know, we we don't specifically address that. And yet it's this huge issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and there are so many different philosophies and schools of thought. And, you know, Jeff, um, it's interesting that you should ask that question because my husband happens to work for Walker Dunlop, which is a Denver-based um, financial services company. And, you know, they're all over the country. And yet the the president, the founder, the CEO, Willie Walker, he believes, he just has a bias and he believes that it's better to be in the office, right? Like yep. there's there's an energy and there's a dynamic that exists when people are together that you that you can replicate to a point via Zoom. But it's like why Terry and I decided that this needed to be an in-person program. Yep. Right? Because right. remotely yeah, I agree 100%. you cannot, you know, and and keep in mind, you know, Brene Brown, who is one of my favorites, uh, in fact, we we lean into her work a lot as a resource for leadership growth formula. And Brene Brown, I'm sure you as a Texan, you probably are familiar with Brene. I'm not. I've heard no? the name, but I'm not. So, yes, she actually has the fourth most watched TED Talk of all time. Okay. And it, she's a Texan. She's a fifth generation Texan. Um, she is a, a researcher, author. She's just blowing up the 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 business world these days with her her well her latest book is called Atlas of the Heart. She does two different podcasts, um, wow. but that that 2009 TED Talk really launched her career. She'd already mm-hmm. been an author of several books because she's a researcher and professor at the University of Texas, and so she um, in one of her books, Dare to Lead. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she talks about, we as human beings are hardwired for connection. You know, we are truly hardwired for connection. And so Jeff, to your point, it makes it difficult, you know, um, I got sidetracked with my little sidebar promo, for <laughs> Brown. <laughs> she, but it, it, it does speak to the need for some people, right, to be in that collaborative environment. And so how we address that, because we're not, we don't necessarily specifically talk about how do you manage a, you know, a remote worker is if you are showing up, right, as, Mm -hmm. as the leader you want to be, and, um, and you are, you trust your, and you are confident in your leadership capabilities, then you manage that scenario, right? You manage the person, perhaps not the process. You manage what that person is going through. Since 2020, um, that was a, that was a changing uh, part for, for Phipps pharmacy, not because of the pandemic. The pandemic was huge for everybody, but I had decided, um, I did a little survey from Tony Robbins, a motivational speaker guy. Mm-hmm. This is what drives you. And I, I did the survey and, and it came out that what drives me is change. And so once I, I knew it, but I never had really thought of it the, the, the way that it presented it. And so in the first quarter of 2020, we um, changed wholesalers, changed buying groups, changed PSAOs. We switched to Pioneer RX and I opened a location. All in the first quarter. Wow. <laughs> um, not to mention a pandemic occurred. Um, sure. You know, which which was which would have been enough. Um, so all that was the first quarter. Um, then a year later, we bought our fourth store, fourth store, which would have been in July of twenty one. And so um, identifying that that change and trying to figure out like how do you how do you change and how do you make things better? Um, you know, we've changed um, phone systems in the last two years. Um, we've become active with CPSN in the last two years, all those because, um, uh, I really identified that I enjoy that change and, and, and either you, you change quickly or you lose, um, is my opinion. And so we've tried to be adaptive and not change things that are, are working well, but, but find, find where we're missing and, and make change to get to, to solve problems and solutions, um, in our business. And so it really has, evolved um Phipps pharmacy has doubled its staff numbers in the last two years um, oh wow and so um and a lot of that's just because um we're committed to you know committed to to finding those problems and solving them um we've added um i call them community um 
relations specialists, which are our sales and marketing positions that are out talking about our pharmacy in the community. We do strip packaging, which we call FIPS pack. Um, we do immunization clinics on um, offsite. Um, we do um, compounding. And so we're out talking to providers and that kind of thing. Those are things that I, I sat back and thought, I need to find somebody. I need to find somebody. And then really in the last few years decided, all right, let's, let's quit talking about it and thinking about it. Let's just go ahead and make the change and, and do it. And, so, yeah. um, and really, I, I know it's a pioneer podcast, but I, I've, I've been one of the biggest changes we've made and my staff is happy with the changes with pioneer. We're so much more efficient. We can do more things. And that's really what I, I, I wanted to do. I wanted to look at um, everything in the marketplace and, and where, and what's the best, what gives us the best tools, the tools to be successful. And there's some others out there that are, are do a good job, but I don't think to the, to the extent that, that Pioneer has done. And that gives us opportunities to do more patient care um, yeah. in, le- in less time, which is great. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more pharmacy professionals like you.